to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. This has been a busy week for news, and as I looked over the various news reports, I found a very unusual and interesting thing. So many of these reports, these news stories, were about China in one way or another. And when I counted them up, there were nine separate stories. I'm sure there were more, but I I found nine right off the bat. Nine separate stories about China in China and in the world that are really big stories, all of them. So I thought it might be a good idea to start with just going through these stories and bringing you to places around the world where China is involved and is creating, in one way or another, a threat either to itself or to the rest of the world. So let's start. Well, let's start with the virus. I guess the virus is the, the big deal with China. They, they unleashed it on the world without remorse, without regret, maybe on purpose and have taken absolutely no steps to help us identify it, cure it, treat it, nothing. So let's start with that. We know, for example, that it didn't begin in a live animal market. It began in a bio laboratory. We think maybe a bioweapons laboratory, but in any case, it's a bio-laboratory that was set up a number of years ago as a level four, which is the highest level of security. Only somehow, at some point during the last year, this virus escaped from the lab. It may have been on purpose or it may have just been an accident. My information says that it was an accident, but it doesn't matter because it got out. And it began to infect people in Wuhan, where the laboratory is. That's a city in China. It's a large industrial city with a population of more than 11 million people and a major hub in China's industry because the Yangtze River, which runs through the heart of the city, is the largest, longest river in Asia, and it carries the goods that were produced in Wuhan down the river to the ports to the rest of the world. So... When the virus hit, it hit a large city and a lot of people. Now think about this. When China got the virus, when the virus began spreading in Wuhan, China was fairly quick to close the city off from the rest of China, and that was smart. But in the middle of January, on January 15th, when President Trump signed the first phase of the China-United States trade deal, This was a big thing when it happened. But at the same time, while he was doing that, China already knew that they had a pandemic on their hands. And rather than tell anyone, rather than let the world know, rather than close Wuhan off from the rest of the world, they closed the city off from China. But they did allow at least 5 million people out of the city in the third week of January to travel during 
the Chinese New Year. And these people, many of these people, went outside of China and visited countries around the world, which is what Chinese people enjoy doing during the, the, the two-week holiday that they get for the Chinese New Year. China allowed it. Maybe they encouraged it, but they certainly allowed it. And these people went out into the world carrying the virus with them. Now, the holiday was on the 25th, and these thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people began traveling during that period. Now, on the 31st of January, it became clear to President Trump that we had a serious problem on our hands, even though China didn't tell us about it. And he closed off travel from China on the 31st of January. And if anybody says that he didn't act soon enough, I really don't know how he could possibly have acted much sooner than he did. But by closing off travel from China, he probably saved tens of thousands of lives. And by the way, the very first case of coronavirus that was confirmed in the United States was only 10 days before he made that pronouncement. 10 days. And we barely knew what it was. Why do I bring this up? Why do I bring this up now? Well, China is now undergoing a third wave of what we call the China virus or the Wuhan virus. And they are having a pretty bad time of it as far as we can tell. Of course, the news doesn't get out about it very much. China still isn't very good about sharing what they know. But we do know, for example, that early this week, they had the highest count of confirmed infections that they have seen in a long time. So this is one of the things, one of the stories is that the virus has come back to haunt the Chinese for the third time this year. And this is a big deal because there's something else going on in China right now that is also a big deal. And that is the spring and summer flooding. This year, China is experiencing the flood of a century, maybe two centuries. It is huge. It has been raining almost nonstop since the beginning of June. And in some places, they have had as much as seven inches of rain in a single day, day after day. Imagine how much water that is. Well, in China, this is something that has been going on for a very long time. Every year, they have spring floods. In fact, I have a friend who grew up in China, and he told me that when he was a kid, he lived in the city of Harbin, and the Songhua River runs through Harbin. My friend told me that he would play along the, the banks of the river in the spring. The river would come up very, very high and sometimes overflow the banks, even the levees that were there to keep the river from flooding the city. And he said he would see all kinds of things in the spring floating down that river from upstream. He would see bits and pieces of houses and, and broken carts and dead animals. And the worst of all, 
floating down the river, the corpses of human beings. And that was burned into his memory, so that even as an old man, it was one of his memories of Harbin. So flooding in China isn't new. In fact, it's very old. And when the rivers overflow their banks, particularly in the lowlands, the water rushes out and floods everything in its path, houses, cities, farms, and so forth. So what the Chinese have done has been to build dams along many of these rivers. And the dams are supposed to keep the flooding at bay so that what they can do is release water at their will in order to keep the flooding from destroying the property and the land around it. And one of these dams is what they call the Three Gorges Dam. It's on the Yangtze River, which is the largest, as I said, the largest and longest river in Asia. And this dam is also not only the largest in China, it's the largest hydroelectric dam in the world. It's a mile and a half long across the Yangtze River. And this dam was built in order to prevent flooding onto the surrounding area into the surrounding cities that lie along or across the Yangtze River. Now, here's the news. Why am I telling you this? Because aerial pictures of this dam, this huge monster dam, show that the dam is moving. It's warping. And that may signal that in light of all of the extra rain and the pressure of the water behind the dam, this dam might fail this year. So what does this mean? If the dam fails, what does that mean? Well, if the dam should fail, and because water follows the path of least resistance, the water, the rushing water, the torrents of water that will pour out of the dam will flow downstream will likely destroy all the cities that are in its path, like Yichang and the megacity of Wuhan, which before the virus began had a population of 11 million people. And the water will continue. And maybe we'll reach the city of Shanghai, which has a population of 24 million people. It is estimated that should the dam fails, it will put more than 400 million people at risk. So that is the consequence of the failure of this dam. And the cause of the failure of this dam is because when it was being constructed, it was not constructed properly. According to my sources, it was not firmly embedded in bedrock. And more than that, during the construction, American engineers were called in to inspect the construction while it was under construction, and they found it faulty. But the construction went on anyway without changes. And so now we have a situation where the infrastructure of this dam is warping, and we do not know what the outcome will be. China's propaganda machine wants us to believe that Three Gorges Dam was built to prevent out-of-control floods. 
Now, just a few days ago, the operator of the dam was forced to admit that it was, quote, deformed slightly, unquote, and that the movement had caused some seepage. In other words, Beijing had actually admitted that this huge dam is warping. And of course, they're saying that the warping was just discovered, that it just happened over the weekend, although I reported it to you at least two weeks ago. They're also saying that it's not really important because it only affects non-structural parts of the dam. That's also not true. Yet it has been leaking, and two and a half million people have been quietly ordered to leave their homes and farms and relocate to higher ground. They spent $31 billion building that dam, and they displaced one and a half million people and destroyed irreplaceable ecological balance in the region when it was built. Now, just to give you an idea of how massive the Three Gorges Dam really is, as I said, it's a mile and a half long, and according to the chief operator, it can hold up under the impact from a force that's twice as strong as the flow rate that was recorded last Saturday night, which was more than 2 million cubic feet per second. That's a lot of water and a lot of pressure. He even said that continued pressure like that would make the concrete harder and less susceptible to failure, which he said was part of the design. Right. Only it hasn't stopped the flooding, which was its purpose in the first place. And this year, in the face of a hundred-year flood, it seems likely to collapse altogether. And if it does, it will be a catastrophe of biblical proportions. Last week, operators of the Three Gorges Dam opened three floodgates because the water level behind the massive dam rose more than 50 feet above flood level. And another flood crest was expected to arrive at the dam on Tuesday. So, as usual, China is hiding the facts and not giving the Chinese people the advantage of information and whatever time they may have to escape the raging waters. So now, we still need to wait and see what will happen to the Three Gorges Dam over the next few weeks while it continues to rain and the accumulating water puts more and more pressure on the dam. More than 150 people have already died or are missing because of the flooding and the landslides, and nearly 2 million people have been evacuated so far. We don't know what's going to happen next. Can we believe the Chinese when they say that the dam is sound? And if it's not? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Stay tuned. I will keep covering this until this story is over. Now here's a quick story that I'll tell you about something China is doing that's happening right here. Have you received a package of seeds with Chinese writing on the label that you didn't order? Well, you're among thousands of people who have. On some of these packages it says that the contents are rings, bracelets, or other kinds of jewelry. But when they're opened, it turns out that they actually contain clear, sealable plastic bags filled with unidentified seeds of different sizes, shapes, and colors. Every package is different. The shipping labels indicate that they were being sent from China. The point is this. Because we don't know what kind of seeds they are because they're not labeled, and we don't know why they are being sent to people in the U.S. from China. So here's the thing. 
It's really important that people do not plant these seeds, but turn them over to the United States Department of Agriculture. The worry is that they may be invasive species, or they may be dangerous and sting, uh, burn on contact like wild parsnip or giant hogweed, which we have right here in the U.S. The USDA has tested some of them, and they found that some of these seeds turned out to be mint, sage, lavender, rosemary, morning glory, roses, and hibiscus flowers. So why are the Chinese sending thousands of unmarked packages of common herbs and flowers? What's the point? The USDA promised to test the seeds and determine if there's anything there that would be of concern. Don't expect anything good to come from this. So if you did get a package like this, for heaven's sakes, turn it over to the USDA. They'll figure out what to do with it. And in time, maybe we'll find out what it was all about. Okay, time for a quick break, but I'll be right back with some more stories for you. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. is responsible for 27.2% of all the carbon dioxide that is put into the atmosphere and polluting our air. You know, it's interesting. America comes next, the United States, at 14.6%. That's half, or a little less, a little more than half of what China is doing. Next is India with 6.8%. And Russia with 4.7%, Japan with 3.3%, and a few other countries with far less. And the rest of the world, all the other countries of the world, are 15.8%. Nobody is as bad or is doing as much damage to the air we breathe as China. In fact, you want to know how bad the pollution in China was? Because they burn coal in China, a lot of it. It was so bad that satellites could not see images of cities like Wuhan because the smog from the coal was so thick. Now, during the COVID-19 crisis in China, when all of the factories in Wuhan were closed and not burning coal, the air cleared. And for the first time, the details of the city of Wuhan were visible for the first time in years. And other cities, of course. But Wuhan was an example of how polluted the air was before and after, or before and during the crisis. Because, of course, once the factories went back online, the air clouded up again. Very interesting. Anyway, so it should come as no surprise that this is not the only area in which 
China is helping to destroy our environment. And that's what I want to talk about now, because there are two stories here, one taking place off the coast of Ecuador and one taking place in the Arctic. And both of them have to do with China spoiling our environment and ruining it for the rest of the world. Now, let's start with Ecuador. Last week, a fleet of Chinese fishing boats, these are not little dinghies, these are large ships that can sail across the ocean. And this shipping fleet has more than 260 vessels. And they have crossed the ocean, the Pacific, and they are now congregating around the Galapagos Islands. Now, you know what the Galapagos Islands are. I'll tell you just a little bit about them because it's important. The Galapagos Islands are an archipelago made up of a number of volcanic islands. And these islands are home to one of the most unique ecological wonders of the world. They're administratively a province of Ecuador, but they're about almost 600 miles off the coast of Ecuador in the Pacific Ocean. And they're a World Heritage Site protected by a 180-mile-wide exclusion zone called the Galapagos Marine Resources Reserve. These islands are home to rare species such as fur seals, frigates, those are, are very unusual birds, marine iguanas, swallowtail gulls, sea lions, whales, marine turtles, and all kinds of exotic birds, as well as the famous Galapagos tortoises and sea lions and Galapagos hawks, giant tortoises, marine iguanas, dolphins, and sharks. The islands are known for their delicate marine ecosystem, which, and this is what enables it to support the life of all these animals who have been protected for centuries. Now, having said all that, the news is that last week, a huge fleet of over 260 Chinese fishing boats were seen by satellite approaching the Galapagos Islands. What are they doing there? Well, China is known for its penchant for overfishing waters all over the world. And it seems likely that this is the plan here as well. It was only three years ago, imagine this, in 2017, a Chinese fishing ship was stopped right here in this area and found to be carrying 300 tons of fish, mostly sharks, which were killed and were ready for transport on deck. This was horrendous. 300 tons of sharks of all kinds. Just to clarify what we're talking about, the Galapagos Islands are at least 15,700 miles from the Chinese mainland. On the other side of the Pacific Ocean, and in the other hemisphere, China is in the northern hemisphere, 
Ecuador, and the Galapagos Islands are in the southern hemisphere. So the presence of this huge fleet in the region now, it's so big it can be seen from space. It's a very, very bad sign. Considering their total disregard for ecology or the preservation of our national treasures, it is easy to imagine that their presence there could completely strip the archipelago of its wildlife in no time and destroy the ecological balance of the region forever. And that's not all. Not only are they decimating marine life, they're also polluting the beaches of the Galapagos Archipelago with tens of thousands of discarded plastic water bottles. This fleet, which was first spotted on July 16th, stretches across 300 miles. And although they say they're fishing for squid, their real target are sharks because the fins of sharks are sold to make shark fin soup. And although this soup is illegal in most countries, there is an ongoing demand for soup which can be as expensive as $400 a bowl. This is responsible for the slaughter of 100 million sharks every year worldwide. There is at least one report that the fishing boats are currently devastating an area of the Galapagos Conservation Zone by harvesting a large volume of exotic fish and sharks in protected waters. The Ecuadorian government is watching the situation closely, they say, and they've asked the United States for support. In response to Ecuador's request for assistance from the United States, our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said this, Given the PRC's unfortunate record of illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, rule-breaking, and willful environmental degradation, it is more important than ever that the international community stands together for the rule of law and insists on better environmental stewardship from Beijing. He went on to say, it is time for China to stop its unsustainable fishing practices, rule-breaking, and willful environmental degradation of the oceans. We stand with Ecuador and call on Beijing to stop engaging in illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. Well, those are words, and they may or may not help, because China marches to its own drummer, and it doesn't really care what the rest of the world thinks just like it doesn't care whether it is ruining the world for anybody else. China needs more than just strong words. It needs strong action behind those words. Teddy Roosevelt once said, talk softly and carry a big stick. And I think a big stick is what China needs before it ruins the world for everybody else. Ecuador's president, Lenin Moreno, has called the Galapagos, quote, one of the richest fishing areas and a seedbed for life for the entire planet, unquote. And one member of the Blue Planet, an NGO that is fighting against overfishing, he said, quote, we are watching the destruction of the ocean in real time, unquote. Well, my friends, this is a very disturbing story. 
And it's not clear what, if anything, is going to be done about it. But what is apparent is that China's irresponsibility and unwillingness to behave by global norms that respect the, the rights and property of other countries is going to create a great deal, not only of dissonance between nations, but a great deal of destruction of the lifeboat that we call our planet Earth. Now, here's another story about China's disregard for planet Earth and their willingness to go into open waters and totally overfish them so that there's nothing left for anybody else. And more than that, the fish population that balances the ecosystem of the ocean becomes unbalanced by China's overfishing. Now, China is building a nuclear-powered icebreaker that it can use, presumably, in the Arctic, in areas that are now largely controlled by Russia and the United States. And we are guessing, because they haven't talked about it yet or told us anything, no surprise there, and we are guessing that it will use this icebreaker to find a new place to overfish under the Arctic ice. And by the way, as this ice is melting, the access to fish is much greater than it, it has been in the past. So we will see what China is going to do in the Arctic. And its icebreaker, nuclear-powered, is going to give it a great deal of leverage as it goes into these waters, which it hasn't been able to go into before. We'll see. Okay, one more story, and this one isn't about ecology, and it's not about flooding, and it's not about... This is about Hong Kong. As you no doubt know by now, the Hong Kong government has postponed September's parliamentary elections for a year. Hong Kong's political leader has the title of CEO, Chief Executive Officer, and her name is Carrie Lam. She was appointed by China, and she said that she would invoke emergency powers in order to postpone the elections. And she said this was entirely, quote, quote, she said, based on public safety reasons. There were no political considerations, she said, unquote. Sure, <laughs> we believe that. She said that postponing the elections is necessary because of a recent rise in coronavirus infections. But the opposition has accused her of using the pandemic as a pretext to stop people from voting. I have another theory, which is that it has more to do with consolidating her power and the powers behind her and making sure that the uprising has been sufficiently suppressed before the election takes place. Of course, the opposition, which is probably a majority of Hong Kong citizens, they thought they could get a majority in the Legislative Council in September because there is so much anger at Beijing's new national security law in Hong Kong and because they are losing their freedoms. This law 
is taking their freedoms away from them. And that's the whole point of China taking over Hong Kong 27 years before the autonomy was set to expire. 12 pro-democracy candidates were disqualified by the government from running in the elections. The government said the candidates were not fit to run for office because they supported independence for Hong Kong. Well, yeah, and the police in Hong Kong have also ordered the arrest of several pro-democracy activists, and they aren't even living in Hong Kong. But according to police, they have violated the national security law by advocating freedom and democracy. Well, yeah. One of these men is a U.S. citizen, and he's living in California. This is the first time that China has used extraterritorial power that was written into the new security law to try to go after people who are not in Hong Kong. You see, this is a power play by China. We saw it coming when the demonstrations against the slow slipping away of autonomy and freedom in Hong Kong. These demonstrations began in Hong Kong last July, and we reported about them then and continued to report about them as the year ended and the new year began and even through the coronavirus crisis. And as time went on, the demonstrations, which began peacefully enough, even when a million people came out into the streets, the demonstrations were peaceful. The people were peaceful. But over time, as frustration grew, the demonstrations became more and more violent. And the heavy hand of the Chinese government became heavier and heavier until this new security law was passed and autonomy for Hong Kong ended. This is China's heavy hand and boot on the next of Hong Kong people who have been living in freedom all their lives and suddenly have all their freedom taken away. I think the bottom line here in all these examples about China and all the stories that I've told today, the, the, the bottom line is that China is all about power. And it's not the Chinese people we're talking about. It's the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party that rules the country with an iron fist and wants more than anything to rule the world. And in the process, by the way, which we will talk about again, no doubt, on another day, in the process, they want to destroy America. So what is important for us to understand that even as the Chinese government is an enemy of their own people, as we have seen, it is also an enemy of the United States and the enemy of the world. Well, that's been a bit heavy, I think, I'm afraid, but world news is what it is. My job is to bring it to you, to explain it to you if I can, and then to let you draw your own conclusions. Now, after the break, I'll be right back 
with some new stories on a lighter vein for you. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Here's an unusual, heartwarming story about a dog who was rescued from New England's tallest mountain. But it's also a cautionary tale for all dog lovers. Last week, a 150-pound St. Bernard was climbing Mount Washington in New Hampshire with his owners and their son and the other family dog when all of a sudden, this big St. Bernard just couldn't go any further. Now, we all know that St. Bernards are famous for rescuing people in the Alps, and they're usually depicted with, with a small barrel of brandy around their necks. But that's usually in winter in the deep snow, and the brandy is to resuscitate the people who've been lost on the mountain. But this St. Bernard was the one who needed help. It was summer. It was hot. And that was the problem. You see, when it's hot and you're walking on gravel or on rocks, the rocks get hot from the sun and from the heat. And that's hard on a dog's feet. So he lay down because he couldn't go any further. And they, they looked him over and they found that his paws were scraped and inflamed. He couldn't walk because he was in so much pain. So this was already about five miles up the mountain. And the dog, whose name was Jack, just couldn't go any further up. And he certainly couldn't go any further down. He was stuck. So anyway... The woman and her 15-year-old son hiked down the mountain with the families of the dog, a Labrador, or Labradoodle maybe, who apparently did not have the same problem. He wasn't as big a dog, and in any case, he could still walk. The man of the trio stayed overnight with Jack 
above the tree line. It's summertime. It wasn't cold. He was fine. And the next day, the wife came back with a rescue team, and they went up the five-mile-long trail with a stretcher and gauze and booties. Getting up to the site, getting Jack treated, and then getting him back down on a stretcher, all 150 pounds of him, took about nine hours. Nine hours, wow. The rescue team consisted of the owners of a pet shop and bakery. There were also two other people and four people from the Appalachian Mountain Club. And they all came up to rescue Jack. So this story, it's a good story because the dog was saved and people who really cared about animals came to rescue him. And the cautionary part of the tale is to remember, if you're a dog owner, to protect your dog's feet in the heat of summer. Now, here's another story. It's a silly story about fake news, only it has its serious side too. You know how there's a big discussion now about whether Joe Biden should debate Donald Trump in the run-up to the election? A lot of Democrats are saying that he shouldn't, although they're not specific about why. Of course, we have a good idea, since Joe is not quite as quick on his feet as maybe he once was. That's an understatement. And he is famous for making really damaging gaffes, like not remembering where he is, or drifting off in the middle of a sentence, or wandering off when he's supposed to be speaking. In fact, he is giving every indication of being in early stages of Alzheimer's. And that's nothing to laugh about. That's serious. But a man in that condition shouldn't be running for president. If he can't get his thoughts together on the campaign trail, how will he manage in the Oval Office? But I digress. The debates. Should he or shouldn't he? Well, some Americans think he should because they think it's important for the voters to see him as he is. And they think that the pressure of the debates and the raw wit of the president might cause him to perform badly on the debate stage. Some Republicans want that to happen, and the truth is that this is probably the most important presidential election of our lifetime. And so maybe it is important to see him as he is, even if it's at his worst. It's the choice between our classic democratic republic and a free market economy and socialism and the end of America as we know it. Well, this week... Now I'm getting to the story. CNN's Brian Stelter said that it was mostly right-wing media who wanted Joe Biden to skip the debate, which is ridiculous since that is exactly backwards. It was the New York Times and other CNN personalities who have been calling for the former vice president to skip the debates. Maybe they think that Biden will be no match for Trump. I tend to agree, but I don't know what their reasoning is because, honestly, I don't watch CNN very often. It may just be my conservative perspective, but I think the left is getting wackier and wackier every day. They're working so hard to convince themselves that Biden is going to win, although I don't even think he's going to make it until November 3rd. And then we may be stuck with 
Kamala Harris or Susan Rice or even Stacey Abrams, who still thinks she's governor, even though she lost that election by a significant margin. Like I said, wackier every day. Only this is serious because it could actually happen, and you just can't make this stuff up. And here's a shocker. 100 famous liberals signed a letter last week calling for an end to the cancel culture. Wow. In a letter that was signed by such celebrities as J.K. Rowling, Noam Chomsky, David Brooks and Michelle Goldberg, Farid Zakaria, David Froome, Margaret Atwood, and feminist icon Gloria Steinem. You may not recognize all these names, but they are all dyed-in-the-wool liberals, and they actually want to talk. I want to read you a good part of this letter because I think it's important, and it's part of what I hope is a new movement away from the cancel culture, away from doing things for no reason and not having to justify yourself with an intelligent argument. Here's part of their letter. Quote, The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counterspeech from all quarters, but it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still, institutional leaders in a spirit of panicked damage control are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. We are already paying the price in greater risk aversion among writers, artists, and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal in agreement. The stifling atmosphere that restricts public debate invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. We need to preserve the possibility of good faith disagreement without dire professional consequences. If we won't defend the very thing on which our work depends, we shouldn't expect the public or the state to defend it. Unquote. Now, aside from that rather caustic remark while we have come to expect this on the radical right, unquote. Hmm. If you've been listening to my program for a while, you know that I've been talking about this for a long time. For heaven's sake, they almost sound like conservatives. They're talking about the need for civil discourse and a sharing of opposing views, and so am I. I've complained for a long time about liberals who won't discuss anything important with me because they don't want to hear my point of view. They only want to hear their point of view. And if I don't agree with them, then they don't want to talk to me. 
Isn't it time that we take our disagreements off the street and bring them back into the realm of intelligent and thoughtful conversation, where the exchange of ideas is a good thing and not one to be canceled? You know, I'd like to talk about this for a little bit because it's an important subject. And the longer we have our arguments on the street, as long as we have riots and violent demonstrations, as long as we pull down statues of people we don't like, or maybe we don't even know about but think we don't like, and as long as we cannot have a conversation without calling each other names or using horrible, nasty swear words because we can't think of real words to use, words that have meaning and implications and subtexts. I think this is really an important subject to discuss. It's the discussion that precedes the discussion, I hope, because what we need to do is to reach out to each other. Because if we don't, there is going to be a confrontation unlike anything we have seen in our lifetime. And it could lead to civil war. What we're seeing on our streets now, the riots, the violence, the language, the rise in crime, for whatever reason, it's not the way America should be. We should understand that the whole principle of our nation, the philosophy behind the creation of this democratic representative republic is based on our ability to work through our disagreements, to talk about the things that we need to discuss about the way we want our lives to be, the way we want our nation to be. You know, when our nation was founded, our, our founding fathers didn't agree about everything. There were a lot of things they didn't agree on. And sometimes it nearly came to blows. Sometimes it came to blows or duels. But in the end, they understood that they needed to meet each other in the middle. They had to compromise. They had to find solutions that made sense, that worked for almost everybody. And you know, there's another issue that I want to talk about that's related to this, and it has to do with history, with the way we view history. And we need to talk about this because our history is checkered with really bad things. Things like slavery, things like Jim Crow, things like our treatment of American Indians, things like the way we talk to each other, the way we slander each other, all this. It's part of human nature and it's part of our history, but it's also, I think it's really important that we understand that we have overcome a lot of this. We have changed our culture so that slavery was abolished by federal law. Jim Crow was abolished by federal law. 
It doesn't mean that there isn't racism, that it doesn't exist, that there isn't prejudice. Of course it exists. We all have some prejudice in us, but we have overcome so much in this country. We should be proud of what we have accomplished and we should be ready to move on, not to look back and say, we need to destroy all of the bad things in our history. We need to forget about them. We need to wipe them out because they make us feel bad. But you know what? If we don't learn from our history, if we don't use our history in order to build a better future, then we will have lost our souls. We will have lost our history. We will have lost what brought us to this day and made us who we are. And that's a really important thing to remember, I think, because as one wise man once said, and it's been attributed to several people, so I won't give a, an attribution, but as this man once said, those who forget our history are destined to repeat it. We don't want to repeat those histories of slavery, of intolerance, of treating people with disdain because of their race or because of their religion or their country of origin. We're better than that. We should be better than that. So I, I like the idea that these liberals have come together and even though they disparage the radical right in their second paragraph, they have the right idea that we need to come together and share ideas and talk about what's right and what's wrong about who we are and what we want to be and what we want to accomplish. And these are writers, so they have to talk about their expression. And if they don't express themselves honestly then they are traitors to their craft. They're traitors to themselves. So here's what I suggest. I suggest that we all think about how we can reach out to people on the other side to have a conversation, to start a conversation. And maybe it doesn't go so well the first time around, but maybe we keep trying because it is only by reaching out and eliminating the barriers and the space between us that we can come to something that is better, something that will overcome the violence in the streets and the hatred that has built up between us. This is America, my friends. This is what we have to do in order to move forward into the 21st century and to make it valuable and make it work. Well, we've come to the end of an hour again, and I thank you for spending it with me. I wish you all a good week. I wish you a healthy week. I wish you a safe week. And I look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.